this final worship service together has been very stressful, uh, stressful for us all, and I owe it. <laughs> and there's several reasons why. I think we've shared many of those reasons uh, with one another. But how do you conclude almost 20 years of Christian pastoral ministry with a church family occasioned by the providential will of God, even as uh, Elder Lynn prayed this morning? Well, the answer I wish to share with you, and I know you will not find this as a surprise, uh, comes from the Holy Scripture. We look to the Bible to seek answers and understanding. And so we turn to Acts chapter 20 this morning, uh, in verses 17 through 36, where Luke records the Apostle Paul being providentially moved on from his gospel ministry among the churches in Asia, uh, and especially from the church at Ephesus, where he had a spiritually deep and rich ministry, and, of course, if you read the epistle to the Ephesians, you, you get a, a taste of that deep and rich ministry that Paul had uh, among the Ephesians. It's also not lost on me, which is kind of interesting, and we don't know this exactly, but it would seem that uh, the Apostle Paul at that time and, and my age now would be about the same. And so uh, there's nothing mystical about that. It just uh, I find it, I guess, strangely comforting that I would be about the same age as the Apostle Paul as this event is recorded for us. As we read verse 17 about Paul calling for the elders to meet him there at Miletus before he departed, uh, his parting exhortation is instructive and applicable to our dispersion as a local church also, accepted as the will of God. And like the Apostle Paul, along with the Ephesian elders, we can commend our consciences before God and one another and the world. And this is something I want you to take with you. These following summary statements of application are further expounded through the epistle writing, especially the epistle writing of the Apostle Paul. I would give you a, a, an encouragement that you would take these study notes with you and the, the points that are made that Paul says and commends to the Ephesian elders. Just read the uh, epistle to the Ephesians and see where Paul elaborates where he's drawing on this experience and drawing on this uh, truth that holds him and keeps him and that he's leaving as exhortation to those whom he loved. And I also want you to remember this about application of Scripture. I think we sometimes get this missed. I've said this long ago and continue to say it, that oftentimes people say, I want practical preaching. What they, want, what they mean is they want something prescriptive. Preacher, go tell me what to do. Go tell me to take this three times a day, or to do this three steps, or to do this or do that. Often when we say we want practical preaching that's applicable, what we really say is we want you to just tell us what to do. But I want you to understand that practical and applicable biblical preaching is not just about doing something. It's also about thinking with the mind of Christ. And I want you to think about the things that I say to you this morning. I want you to think about them and take them with you. So we look at verses 18 and 19. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. So here, by a redeemed and transformed Christian humility that Paul speaks of, being a new person in Christ, and of course we have his wonderful testimony of how he was changed from the inside out as a persecuting Pharisee Saul to an apostle to the Gentiles sent by Jesus with the transforming power of his grace in the gospel ministry. He was a new person in Christ. And so the gospel ministry is conducted in humility depending on God's revealed means of grace against false religious schemes. 
This is the example that the Apostle Paul gives to us. He shows us a model of humility. He shows us that he was depending upon God's means of grace. That it wasn't by his words of elocution. It wasn't by all of his learning. He was one of the the top uh, uh, men of his age. A student of Gamaliel. He was on the fast track to being one of the uh, most notable people of his generation. And he gave all that up for the excellency of Christ. He counted all of that as refuge. Like the bacon grease, uh, the eggshells that you throw in the trash in the morning. He said, that's what that's all worth to me. Christ is most excellent in his gospel. And I will preach trusting God's means of grace. I can't change anyone. But the power of the gospel has been committed to me. And that's what I will keep and do by the grace of God. So after the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah Christ, Judaism took a hard dive into mysticism. That's why Paul talks about here being persecuted by the Jews. It wasn't only the Jews that were persecuting him. Uh, The various sects and groups and and, uh, powers that be persecuted uh, Paul, but, but Paul recognizes this particular conflict with Judaism And we need to also pay attention to that. Uh, As I said, after rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, Judaism took a hard dive into mysticism. And so I want to say to you this morning regarding false religious schemes of all kinds, beware of false mysticism, of all claims to self-enlightenment. You are in darkness without Christ. The world is in darkness without Christ. Christ is the light of the world. See these false claims to self-enlightenment for what they are. They are false religious schemes. There is also false religious rationalism. I call that humanistic psychology. I've told you before about humanistic psychology. It's like a blind hog under an oak tree. It can root up an acorn, but it doesn't know the oak tree is there. So the acorn that is rooted up are patterns of behavior that are hurtful to people. Humanistic psychology can say, this hurts you or others when you act this way. But humanistic psychology, for all its claim to religious self-healing, cannot do what only the gospel can do. Cannot see the tree of God's life. That comes through the gospel. And so beware of false religious type of of, uh, rationalism in terms of humanistic psychology. Beware of false religious eugenics. That is, any claim to a pure blood superiority of any group. Jesus said to the Jews of his day that were persecuting him and rejecting him as the Messiah Christ, that God could raise up children of Abraham from the dirt of the ground. Your blood claim is worthless. Your only blood claim goes back to Adam, who sinned against God. And in your blood is the corruption of original sin. It can only be purified by the blood of the Son of God. And so be aware of all these false religions that are popping up again today. There's nothing new. It comes around over and over. But it's a claim to some kind of superior blood origin. We're of purer blood than you are. We're of a purer group than you are. We will so galvanize our purity that we are superior to you. Beware of that. It comes from the lie of the devil. Going on in verses 20 and 21, Paul says, Now I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So all of the good and beneficial means of God's grace are publicly attested by the priority of corporate worship and pastoral oversight empowered for repentance and faith in Christian living. This is what Paul said as notable that I did among you. Not me, but in terms of what God would have me do. Worshiping publicly. I kept back nothing from you of God's means of grace. The Apostle Paul saying, I couldn't add anything. It's not what I dreamed up. It's not that I had a new and better way. It's that by God's means of grace publicly, what he has owned and said that he will honor. And by pastoral oversight, from house to house, from family to family, caring and watching for your souls, believing that it is by the grace of God that we are empowered to repentance and faith to continue on in our Christian living. So Christian public worship and private devotion are about reconciliation with God through the mediation of Jesus Christ. The atonement, the only covering that can remove the guilt of our sin. That's why we preach the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we preach His blood and righteousness, His death on the cross. Not because we're fascinated with some kind of gore, but because we say this was once and for all done. You want to know what the world would do if they could get their hands on God? You want to know what the devil would do if he could get his hands on God? Look at the cross. Look what was done to Jesus. But Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame that you and I might receive atonement, the covering of our sin's guilt, and be reconciled to God with peace. I can say peace to you who believe, and you can say peace to me because we believe. That's the work of the ministry. That's the public worship of God and the private devotions of oversight and care. It seems that the visible church has almost lost that. We, in Sunday school this morning, were rejoicing to hear our, our dear departed brother, R.C. Sproul, who's now in heaven, but being dead, he still speaks through the, the uh, media. And he was preaching on Josiah, the king that brought reform. And it gave us hope. There will always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will. No matter how we may be tested and tried, no matter how we may be scattered, yet we will worship the Lord in spirit and in truth by his means of grace that are all sufficient in public as a testimony, not that we're superior or better, but that others are welcome to come hear the gospel of grace. And so, um, let's go on in verses 22 and 23. And see now, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. So Paul here writes of himself being a bondservant to Christ. The world despises that. Actually, the literal term here is slave. And so Paul is not aggrandizing human extortion. He isn't approving human cruelty. But what Paul is doing is taking that which is scurrilous in the world and saying, God has redeemed it. I am a bond slave to Jesus Christ. This results in conflict with the world, the flesh, and the devil because the world hates the message that you are uh, accountable to God. And so everywhere we find that the gospel, the humility, the self-sacrifice, all of these things contradict the cultural measures of success. Don't try to appraise the tribulation and struggle that we're going through by worldly success. By measures of worldly success, we're looked upon as a failure. 
by measures of worldly success, were looked upon and scoffed at as, well, God turned his back on you. But we look to the scriptures and to the witness of the Spirit of God that what God does that we cannot see with our eyes is assured to us in our heart by faith because of the Word of God. The Word of God tells us what we're to believe and what we're to hold on to. And the inscrutable will of God is to be trusted because in everything God has shown that He is for us in His love and that He spared not His own Son. Let's keep things in the right order. Let's look unto the Lord Jesus Christ who gave His life for us, suffering all the hatred of the world and despised as unsuccessful and a failure. And let's identify with Him whom God the Father exalted in that He rose... He rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. And today he sits at the right hand of the glory of the Father. And he rules and will overrule all his enemies and our enemies, despite what worldly success says to the contrary. Don't doubt the gospel. Don't doubt the power of God. Don't doubt that he's sending us out into the world for his purpose. The Lord favors faithfulness. And I want you to hang on to this. The Lord favors faithfulness. Persecution is not a means of grace. But, indeed, all who desire to live godly, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus said, Blessed are you when men persecute you and revile you and say all manner of evil things against you for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. So please understand that it is faithfulness that God blesses. That God blesses His means of grace in the preaching of the Word, in the administration of the sacraments. Those things He said, Here is what I attest to you that I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. My Word will never fail. No matter what you see with your eyes, you believe in your heart. And it's faithfulness that God honors. And persecution is not a means of grace. We don't go out courting persecution, thinking that we're more holy than others. We want to live as peaceably as we can with all. But that peace comes from God. And what comes first is our testimony that God is God and His salvation is through Jesus Christ, His Son, and that we confess the Holy Trinity as the only true God and it's only by His grace that we have the gift of salvation. Those things will bring you in conflict with the world because the world doesn't want to hear that. It never has wanted to hear it. But please understand, it's faithfulness that God blesses. And it's faithfulness by which God will keep you. He will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Going on to verses 24 and 25, Paul says, But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Now, I want to point out some things to you here. I know we can be caught up in the emotion of what the Apostle Paul says and the wonderful sacrifice of, of himself. I, I don't care what happens to me. I don't count my life near to myself. I give it to the Lord. And I know that although I have been preaching to you, now I'm going to be gone and I won't see you anymore. But those aren't the things I really want to focus on. I want to focus here on verses, uh, uh, in this, these verses, 
as um, the uh, gospel paradox of the Christian church ministry. Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. And this is what Paul is saying. I, I took up my cross daily and followed the Lord Jesus, by which I was crucified to the world and the world was crucified to me. And Paul is saying, you know what sustained me in this? You say, how could the Apostle Paul have gone through all the things that he went through? How could he have? I mean, there are times we wonder how he even survived. There are times when I wonder if he actually died and God brought him back to life. He was once stoned. He may have been stoned to death. I don't know. He was once drowned. He may have been drowned to death. I know that sounds like a <laughs> obvious, but I mean, we don't know. But the point is, did he really die? Did God bring him back from the dead? I don't know, but this is what I know. God kept him alive and going until God said, it's time for you to come to heaven now, Paul. He kept him alive and going through many, sustained through many persecutions, tortures, hateful uh, treatment, lies, and uh, false accusations, on and on and on. Beyond all human limitations, by the grace of God, you'll see what the Apostle Paul identified as his strength. How did the Apostle Paul go on? This is what he said. I preach the mysteries of the kingdom of God to you. I want you to see that again. Look at verse 24. But none of these things moves me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. All of this was done so that I might continue testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. Now verse 25. And indeed, now I know that I will, uh, among you all, uh, I have... Uh, I will not see you anyway. What he says here, verse 25. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God. That's what I wanted to make the connection. Testifying to the gospel of Jesus Christ and preaching the kingdom of God. Those are the things I wanted to center in on. Testifying to the gospel of the grace of God and preaching the kingdom of God are inseparable. I'm fumbling over this and it kind of upsets me because I really wanted to make this a strong point. <laughs> this is what I want to leave with you because I think there's much confusion today. Testifying to the gospel of the grace of God and preaching the kingdom of God are inseparable. So here's the catechism. You've heard it many times. I'm begging and praying that you'll take it with you. Of what is Jesus the bridegroom? And you all know, you can also. He is the bridegroom of his bride, the church. Right? Of what is Jesus the bridegroom? He is the bride of his bride, the church. Of what is Jesus the head? And you all know, Jesus is his head, is the head of his body, the church. Of what is Jesus the head? Jesus is the head of his body, the church. Why do we stop there? Of what is Jesus the king? Jesus is the king of his kingdom, the church. There is no salvation any other way. There is no ordinary possibility of salvation outside of the church of Jesus Christ. He is the king of his kingdom, the church. His kingdom is not found in the affairs of men. His kingdom is not found in the earthbound nations or the political powers or the rebuilding of old and ancient destroyed kingdoms or temples. He is not there. Jesus said, if you hear him say, Jesus is over in Jerusalem building his temple, do not go there. Jesus says, I am not there. I am in heaven. And the true temple is the worshipers of God that have made alive 
and worship God. You won't find me in the temples of men. You won't find me in the man-made systems of religion. You won't find me in all of self-help and self-deification claims of the false religions and the lies of the devil. You will not find me there because I am the king of my kingdom, the church, and it's a kingdom of salvation out of which no one can be saved. Verses 26 and 27. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Isn't it interesting that Paul says that at this point? Why? Because I've testified of the gospel and I've preached the kingdom and the whole counsel of the word of God. Therefore I am innocent of your blood because I've told you the truth no matter how it offends you. It's not intended to offend you. It's intended to beg for your soul against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Verse 27, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of the word of God. The whole counsel of God. So the courage of preaching and teaching the whole counsel of God is the only way of keeping the gospel pure with soul motivation and faith, hope, and love. I wish, again, you would let that sink in. Preaching the whole counsel of God. It takes courage. It takes the courage of faith to preach the whole counsel of God. Routinely we are told, if you preach that, people aren't going to listen. If you hold on to those old creeds, if you continue to, to ask people to confess and to say these things that are so um, offensive in their uh, ancient language, people aren't going to understand it. People aren't going to like it. Constantly people are being told that this is an old, uh, antiquated, uh, some kind of brutish blood and guts religion. It's all been falsified that way rather than the beauty of the cross. Have you ever considered this in the redeeming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Something that was one of the most vile and ugly images of the world. An instrument of torture has been redeemed into a symbol of beauty. We can talk of the cross today in terms of the beauty of God's grace and forgiveness because it's been redeemed. I'm not here to try to display to you some kind of gory sci-fi Hollywood special effects attempt to make you feel guilty or to turn your stomach and therefore get some kind of visceral reaction from you. That's not what I'm here about. I'm here to tell you, look at what God gave that your soul might be redeemed, that your sins might be forgiven. God did not spare even His own Son. No amount of gold or silver or anything precious in the world could purchase your soul. And again, here's one of the things I've said over and over. I know you're probably tired of hearing it. I'm not tired of saying it, though. And that's this. Jesus could only satisfy God the Father being Himself God. Jesus could only substitute for sinners being Himself human. The God-man. The greatest mystery in terms of the incarnation, the revelation of the Holy Trinity. Jesus, the Son of God. The Son of Man. So, the only way of keeping the gospel pure is by having the courage to preach the whole counsel of the Word of God. You want to know about that whole counsel of the Word of God? Paul says, let me tell you about my knowledge and the mysteries of God. He says that in the book of Ephesians. 
So here's one of the premier passages in the Bible, the epistle to the Ephesians, that talks about courage of preaching the whole counsel of God, the God who says, I am sovereign, and you don't make deals with me, I will work all my holy will. And your question is, do you trust God to work all his holy will? Can you say like with Abraham, the God of all the universe will do what is right because he is altogether righteous. Do you trust God beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is altogether righteous? God will do all his holy will. That's one of the great mysteries in the epistle to the Ephesians, to have the courage to preach the whole counsel of God. Don't worry that people say, oh, I don't want that kind of God. Of course you don't want that kind of God. Unless, like one of my old elders from many, many years ago, was a country boy from South Georgia, this is how he put it. God changed my want to. No, I didn't want to acknowledge that. No, I didn't want to submit to God. No, I didn't want to be humbled. No, I didn't want to confess my sin. God changed my want to. Now I want to confess. Now I want to love him. Now I want to testify. Now I want to follow him. Now I want to die daily and live. For me to die is Christ. To live in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, preaching the whole counsel of God, revealed by Christ in all the Bible, is soul-liberating. It's a soul-liberating ministry, being assured that salvation is the Lord. You know why I can preach so compassionately that salvation is of the Lord? Because I know it. (laughs) And I know if God saved me, he can save you. It's soul-liberating. You see, your eternal destiny doesn't depend on whether I happen to have a bad hair day. I mean, there's some days when I may not care whether you go to heaven or not. Just because I still have remnants of sin. But see, God's not like that. (laughs) And so, it's so liberating to know that by preaching the gospel, even through a broken vessel, that God's salvation is not hindered. It's greater than the failures and the foibles of our humanity. And it reaches beyond our limitations. And God saves sinners. And the Apostle Paul said, I know that chiefly. I count myself as the worst of sinners. Rather than putting others down or thinking myself better than them, this is what motivates and encourages and assures me, if God saved me, he can save you. So that's a, a great motivation of preaching the whole counsel of God's word. Don't hold anything back because it's God who saves. And then verses 28 and 29. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So Paul warns here, and we should take heed to it, That a local visible church is like a flock of the Good Shepherd, redeemed by the blood of Christ. We're not just a club here. We're not just gathering as as friends. The Bible identifies us as brought together, gathered together, synagogue, that we are ecclesia, we are called out ones. We are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're the family of faith. We have a living bond together. We have a Father in heaven. 
We are here not as a human club. We are here as the body of Christ. We are here being beautified as the bride of Christ. We are here submitted to the rule of Christ our King. We are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, a visible representation of it. We are a flock of the Good Shepherd. And where faithful overseers and elders will be true to the Holy Spirit, they must warn. Your elders here have warned you. They have overwatched for your souls. They have held me accountable to the whole counsel of the Word of God. I was told that a couple of weeks ago, my sermon on textual criticism was over the top. Let's just stick to the Bible. It's good advice. I got all worked up. I was like, man, I want you to have confidence in the Word of God, and I want to tell you about this. You should have confidence in this passage of Scripture at the end of Mark, and so let's talk about textual criticism. No. Elder said to me, that's okay, but you know, just tell them it's true. And we can talk about this in Sunday school, or we can talk about this, you know, other ways. We even had emails back and forth, and I convinced no one. But they watch, not just watch for your souls. I'm accountable in mutual submission and humility that we keep focus where it should be and keep the word before us as it should and continue to watch day and night and proclaim the things of God that are most surely believed among us because we are a flock of the Lord Jesus and you need to be warned and protected against false pastor shepherds who are like savage wolves. I didn't say that. Do you know that's one of the main motifs throughout Scripture? False shepherds who are like wolves, who will devour the flock, who will um, chew up and spit out the sheep. False shepherds. You've been warned. Paul says, be warned. Don't be naive. Don't be foolish. Watch and pray and be grounded in the truth of God. Theological and moral accountability are identified in Scripture in terms of conscience. Don't let anybody bind your conscience with false man-made rules and try to manipulate and, and exploit you. Believe what the Word of God says. Confession. We need to publicly confess the truth of God. It's sometimes a fearful thing to confess the truth of God because the world hates it. But God calls us to confess, to believe in our heart and to confess with our mouth. The Lord Jesus is risen from the dead. In character, the Bible sets out these discernible character of a person. The, the word character means like a stamp, an image stamped into metal or wood or leather. And it's, you can see what it is. Here's the stamp of a horse's head. Here's the stamp of a vase. Here's the stamp of uh, a flower. And it, you see it. No, that's not a horse's head. That's a flower. No, that's not a godly, that's an ungodly character. No, that's godly character. You can see it, because the Bible says this is what it looks like. And then Paul says it was shown in his behavior. Look, the way you behave matters. The way you demonstrate and live is seen by others. The Apostle Paul at one time said to the church in Corinth, you are my epistle written in your lives. Not just written with ink on paper, but written in the way you live. Now to verses 30 and 31. 
also from among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Here's the compassion of the Apostle Paul not to seek his own self-aggrandizement and for those to follow him. He said, don't follow me. You'd be an, an, um, an imitator of me as I am an imitator of Christ. And beware of those who would try to get you to follow them. Those who promote their own names and their own agendas and their own ideas and want you to line their pockets. There are cheaters everywhere. And Paul says, don't be fooled by them. The scripture qualifications for pastors, elders, and deacons are antithetical to the cultural social conformity that's pressured by the cult of personality and Christian celebrity. And this again is where the local church oftentimes fails in that they seek elders, pastors, deacons based upon their worldly success and their outward display of what seems to be so impressive rather than their godly character and rather by their knowledge of scripture and their compassion and their humility. They are personalities that are celebrated. Oh, if we recognize this person, then other people will come because this person is noted in this field or that field, not for being godly, but for being rich or for being a, a, a celebrity. And so we will get people to come for this person. And what does Paul say? No. You come to the church for Jesus. He's the one we celebrate. Not celebrating personalities and celebrities of man-made impressions. So the whole counsel of God's word exposes false teaching, especially agendas and programs of self-promotion, self-identity, self-help. That's not the gospel. Anything human-centered and not Christ-centered, everything flesh-serving, and not scripture obeying. Now I know those are broad generalities. That's why I said to you, go to what the apostle wrote in the epistle to the Hebrews, or the epistle to the Ephesians, or to other passages in Romans, or in Philippians, or in Galatians. You go to the apostle Paul's writings uh, to young ministers, Timothy and Titus. Go to his writings and you'll see how he fleshes this out. How he even calls people names, or identifying them as those who are promoting themselves, or promoting some kind of uh, ungospel philosophy or some health, self-help and self-aggrandizing type of attention. And he says, this is not serving and obeying the Scriptures. And now verses 32 through 35, as we come to the conclusion of this, Paul says, So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So here Paul says, this is what the church in the local representation of the body of Christ is about. The whole counsel of God's word is revealed by his gracious word in Christ, the truth as it is in Jesus. That's why Paul says, and quotes Jesus here, Jesus our Lord who said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. 
The Holy Scriptures record for us and make clear to us how we are to be built up as Christian believers in sanctification, being made holy by God's means. It's a shared inheritance from God's mercy and grace. Isn't that wonderful how Paul puts that together, that we share that inheritance of God's mercy and grace and that God is working among us through His means of grace, sanctification, making us holy to His glory. And so the Apostle Paul offers himself as an example, having shown in Christian words and actions of faith, hope, and love how not to be corrupted by social, economic, and political ideologies. Oh, it's such a fight. It's so hard to resist. We're we're constantly bombarded and pounded with giving in or adopting or taking into the church and baptizing social, economic, or political ideologies. And they become conscience-binding, conscience-binding traditions for worldly wealth and rules of human approval and power by exploitation. And my concern and my prayer and my, my heart is that you not be exploited by these false gospels, by these false claims, by these baptized ideologies that are not validated by the Word of God. The Apostle Paul says that in his missionary ensemble that they actually worked with their hands. You know, the Apostle Paul made tents. And he said, I did this for conscience sake so that you couldn't say that in any way I was trying to exploit you. Now, I I have to diverge a little bit from the Apostle Paul here. And I have to say to you all, you have provided for me that I might give myself to prayer and the study of the Word of God. Over these years, you have kept me that I might preach to you the whole counsel of God. Everywhere I have an opportunity, I praise you and bless you as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, as the body of Christ who put their arms around me. I have prayed and I have told these elders, they made me a better pastor. Thank God they watched for your souls and they were concerned that a wolf not come in among us. The deacons have helped me with hands-on. And the deacons constantly tell me that they're a lot more fun than the elders are. (laughs) And we've had many, many good work days. We've rolled our sleeves up together. And we've tended the Lord's place, welcoming and wanting others to come. So I have to say to you, (laughs) wherever I have the opportunity, I talk about you. As the body of Christ. And I have so much more that my heart is too full to say. (laughs) It's upsetting (laughs) when your heart's overflowing and you can't say the things you want to say. Not because you don't know them, they just don't come out. (laughs) Because words, I guess, just can't give the full story. Oh, this is what I want to say the Lord will bless you because He promises He will. Those who regard his ministers, who love and care and provide for them. God says, you are building up reward for yourself in heaven because you have done it to one of his ministers or even one of the least of his children. You've done it to him. That's what Jesus says. So, the Apostle Paul offers himself as an example, having shown in Christian words and action and faith, hope and love, How not to be corrupted by social, economic, and political ideologies. 
that are imported often and baptized as conscience-binding traditions for worldly wealth and rules for human approval and power and exploitation. He says, don't, be, don't do that. Don't go there. <laughs> and once again, he just elaborates that in his epistle writing, and particularly his pastoral epistles to Timothy and Titus. And then we come to verse 36, which I read, and I just said, Lord, when I come to the end of this sermon, I don't know if I can read verse 36 through 38 again, but we need to hear it. So Paul writes, or, or Luke writes, and when Paul had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, that they, and that then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all that they would see his face no more, and they accompanied him to the ship. So, here's the conclusion. A Christian redeemed humanity. Remember, that's how we started out. Paul said, I've been redeemed by Christ. I've been changed. Now I'm a gospel minister. And here's how that change manifested and worked its way out in serving the Lord Jesus and his church. So, a redeemed Christian humanity can express human emotions sanctified by faith. I spent many hours praying God would sanctify my human emotions in faith so that I could get through this. <laughs> I'm not ashamed of it. But here's what I want to leave with you. That a Christian <coughs> redeemed humanity, the limitations of this life and world are not to be compared. We don't end here. They're not to be compared to the better life and the better world revealed by Christian faith. You see, while we are at a transition we are yet to go on and to serve the Lord and to be kept and to be uh, loved by Him and to go out into whatever course and wherever God would direct us. And I am challenging you before Almighty God, you must go into another visible church to worship the Lord Jesus. Worship comes first. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and spirit. And then love your neighbor as yourself. You don't love your neighbor as you love God. You love God first. And the way you love God first is by loving His Son, Jesus Christ, and serving Him and testifying to Him as the way, the truth, and the life. And then we have a better life. We have a better hope that we are gathered in the body of Christ. And I has not seen nor has ear heard the things that God has in store for those who love him. They are revealed to us by his spirit. And the spirit says, I will keep you now and forevermore. You will remain in the body and the family of Christ, alive as brothers and sisters. And there is a greater reality that's heaven in which we will all gather in the great day of the Lord. That's why Jesus said, until I come again, you are to keep this Lord's Supper. I give you this. I give you this as a covenantal pledge. That, that's a visible promise of his oath. That Jesus is more real to us than this bread or this cup is to our physical senses. You know, I've said this silly thing over and over again. When we have this Lord's Supper and you take the bread, you know it's not a slice of apple. And I don't care what the world says. You can make it whatever you want. No, you can't. You're not God. You don't create. 
This is a piece of bread. It's always going to be a piece of bread. But it symbolizes, by the words of institution, a greater reality that can only be received by faith. That's why we don't just give out this bread. We identify it by the words of institution. Jesus says, this bread represents my body. And if you believe this bread is real to your body, you can see it, you can touch it, you can smell it, you can hear it. I mean, you know, all your senses verify. But you know when that bread becomes a part of you? When it passes out of all your senses and it goes into your stomach and is digested and it goes into all your body. That bread becomes a part of you. Jesus is saying, you're a part of me by faith. Here is something greater that you can only receive by faith. And he says of this cup, this cup represents my blood. This is what I had to do for you. I had to die for you. I had to pour out my lifeblood that your sin's guilt might be covered and removed. This cup is just a cup of juice or wine, but it represents, by the words of institution, the new covenant in Jesus' blood that receiving by faith, you can have the assurance to know your sins are forgiven and remembered against you no more.